could just stop there, right? <laughs> that was our, our recitation on the first morning, you remember? On our practice with emptiness. And uh, I also wanted to share with you a practice that relates to aimlessness, the second Dharma seal, before I touch briefly on the third Dharma seal of signlessness. Um, I was reminded, um, my mind reminded me, I remembered um, yesterday a practice that um, one of my Sangha members started doing when he would find himself that he was being hard on himself. He's a guitarist, too. Was that coming from behind me this time, or was that just... The sound really sounded like it was behind me this time. Yeah. Um, so um, Kevin, is a, he's a guitarist professionally, and um, one of the practices that he started doing was when he would become critical of himself or think that he should be something other than he was, in that moment, he would say, and I love you. And I love you, Kevin. So he told us the story about when he was um, going to play at a wedding um, um, some distance away. Um, I think our distances are different than yours. (laughs) (laughs) So it it was about probably an hour, 45 minutes or an hour from his house. (laughs) And, um, well, there's a timing question, too, because he's going to play a wedding, too. So there's the distance and the timing. And he got there, and he started setting up, and he realized that he'd forgotten his music stand, which is pretty important if you're going to play a guitar at a wedding. And so he, he called his wife to meet him halfway, on Albemarle Road, and um, as he was driving back, he found himself saying, you have been doing this for 30 years. How could you forget the stand? And then he re- remembered his practice, that he shouldn't be better than he was, that he it, everything was fine where it was. And so he would say, how could you do that? And I love you. <laughs> and he would say, you really must have been distracted. And I love you. So his whole conversation was the difficulty, but always cradled with, and I love you. And I think that Kevin's practice is a really good example of aimlessness, that he was embracing things as they were uh, by holding it with love. And not, because aimlessness is not about being inactive. We said this is engaged practice. And if we all sit on the sidelines, then that's not being engaged. But I think a lot of our difficulties arise when we're unable to practice with the third Dharma seal of signlessness. It's really hard right now to practice with signlessness because we're putting signs on ourselves and each other all the time. Um, and in our society that has become so um, polarized, 
we think those signs mean more than they should, than they do. We think when we see the sign, we understand the person. Um, in the Diamond Sutra, the Buddha said that where there are signs, there's deception. Where there is perception, there is deception. If we rely on signs and think we understand the person, then we've missed an opportunity to really find out what that person is and to sit with them, to sit with what's really there. I remember um, when my um, when my great aunt died, um, the um, the family gathered at her house in Hendersonville in the mountains of North Carolina, and uh, I stood in the kitchen with one of my mother's cousins. Um, so my cousin once removed, I think. But, um, and for 30 minutes, he told me what I thought and why I was wrong. And I never said a word. <laughs> but he had the signs, because I guess I have a reputation, I don't know. Um, but, uh, you know, he had, he knew who I was. Um, and it, it created the um, inability for us to actually connect. And I've done that to people as well. Um, I have seen someone and thought they were a particular way because of a label that they have. I feel like we're all walking around covered with um, post-it notes. <laughs> and we can pick one and say, oh yeah, this is who you are. And it it prevents us from really being present. And in this day and age, it's, I think it's the hardest one. I think it's the hardest one to practice. Um, and I, in thinking about this, I was um, reading Martin Luther King's book, Strength to Love. It's actually a co collection of his sermons and um, it's, it's, they're amazing, they're beautiful. They're also, we studied this um, in my prison sangha and um, I had, I pointed out to the guys, I, I would, was the only woman in the room, it's very, it's very 1960s male oriented, which is Dr. King, I mean it's, everything's, um, the language is, is male-oriented, so I'm aware of that as I, as I offer it. Um, and I wish I could read what I would like to share in his voice. But um, when, we have, when we have those signs that separate us, and we rely on those signs to separate us, then it seems to me that we're not living up to the chant that we do at the end of every evening, offering the merit of the practice for all beings. Well, except for that one. Or maybe just a little bit for this one. And it's really hard. 
It's much harder to love the person who's right in front of you and rubbing you the wrong way than to, and I didn't look at y'all for any particular reason, <laughs> but than it is to um, see you know, a cute picture of a child halfway around the world or halfway down the block or a kitten, you know, or a dog. It's actually challenging um, to really practice with that chant. And with, you know, it's, it's in several different things we've said, this is for the benefit of all beings. It's in the five mindfulness, um, it's in the five mindfulness trainings, it's also in the five contemplations. So I really appreciate it in Dr. King's book, um, when he starts talking about altruism, and he describes three different types of altruism. And um, he's doing it within, these are um, sermons. So this one is um, based on um, the story of the Good Samaritan, which we always, we all know what a Good Samaritan is, right? Somebody who, and I didn't remember that in the story of the Good Samaritan, what happened was the man was hurt and two different people passed him by before the Good Samaritan stopped. And some of you might remember that as well. Um, but the reason that Jesus told the story was that a, a lawyer asked him um, about how he could get into heaven. And... <laughs> We, we know the loopholes. <laughs> and um, they talked about love thy neighbor as thyself. And then, then the um, lawyer said, but who is my neighbor? And that was the impetus for telling the story of the Good Samaritan. Um, Who is my neighbor? I do not know his name. He is anyone toward whom you are neighborly. He is anyone who lies in need at life's roadside. He is neither Jew nor Gentile. He is neither Russian nor American. He is neither Negro nor white. He is a certain man, any needy man, on one of the numerous Jericho roads of life. So Jesus defines a neighbor not in a theological definition, but in a life situation, which I think is where, for me, this is the application of um, all beings, um, offering our practice for all beings. And just as I'm not trying to convert anybody, I'm, by most people's definitions, I'm not actually a Christian, but I find a lot of value in this. Um, teaching. So then Dr. King talks about the Samaritan, the three types of altruism that the Samaritan exhibited. The Samaritan had the capacity for a universal altruism. He had a piercing insight into that which is beyond the eternal accidents of race, religion, and nationality, which are those labels that we see all the time. Too seldom do we see people in their true humanness, 
a spiritual myopia limits our vision to external accidents. We see men as Jews or Gentiles, Catholics or Protestants, Chinese or American, Negroes or whites. We fail to think of them as fellow human beings made from the same basic stuff as we, molded in the same divine image. The Good Samaritan will always remind us to remove the cataracts of provincialism from our spiritual eyes and see men as men. The universal altruism. It seems to me a teaching about going beyond the signs. Although you heard in there the men part, right? And the second, probably for most of us, more challenging altruism that Dr. King talks about is dangerous altruism. The Samaritan risked his life to save a brother. When we asked why the priest and the Levite could not stop to help the wounded man, numerous suggestions came to mind. Perhaps they could not delay their arrival on an important ecclesiastical meeting. Perhaps religious regulations demanded that they touch no human body for several hours before performing temple functions. Or perhaps they were on their way to an organizational meeting of the Jericho Road Improvement Association. I don't, I don't want to spend this whole time reading to you. Although, actually, I like reading out loud. That's not what we're doing. But, so I'm skipping big sections. The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he stands at times of challenge and controversy. The true neighbor will risk his position, his privilege, and even his life for the welfare of others. In dangerous valleys and hazardous pathways, he will lift some bruised and beaten brother to a higher and more noble life. Dangerous altruism. And then the third part that Dr. King talks about, he refers to as excessive altruism. And this, to me, really sounds like the five ways of putting an end to anger, the the verses toward the end. Um, the Samaritan also possessed excessive altruism. With his own hands, he bound the wounds of the man and then set him on his own beast. It would have been easier to pay an ambulance to take the unfortunate man to the hospital rather than having his neatly trimmed suit stained with blood. True altruism is more than the capacity to pity. It is the capacity to sympathize. Pity may represent little more than the impersonal concern that prompts the mailing of a check. But true sympathy is the personal concern that demands the giving of one's soul. Pity may arise from an interest in an abstraction called humanity. But sympathy grows out of a concern for a particular needy human being who lies at life's roadside. Sympathy is fellow feeling for a person in need, his pain, agony, and burdens.
excessive altruism. We might use different language than Dr. King would. We probably use different language than many strong teachers use. But if we, if we hear the message of altruism as an invitation to go beyond those labels, I believe we might find that enables uh, it enables us to really act in an altruistic way so that we can um, manifest that language we use repeatedly here. This is for the benefit of all beings. You know, many of us before we before we pick up our plate at the meal will say, this plate now empty is will soon be filled with precious food. May I live for the benefit of all beings. May I use it for the benefit of all beings. All beings. That is huge. And yet, just as Dr. King describes the um, Samaritan's act as dealing with the person right in front of him, acting with sympathy. I would probably have said compassion, but dealing with the person right in front of him and, the, and addressing the problems of the person right in front of him. That's the only way that we can address the suffering of all beings. We can't fix everything. We don't need to. But we can deal with the one person who's in front of us or the one person who's sitting on our cushion right now. We can deal with the suffering that's right there. My Sangha in Charlotte does a lot of um, social action work. I can't remember if I said this or not. Um, but we, um, we don't and sometimes we do, but by and large we don't engage in marches or um, except for when they're about specific humanitarian issues, but we, we don't campaign pain for political candidates as a sangha, as individuals, we do. In fact, one of the things that one of our sangha members brings to sangha sometimes is what's happening within her around the political campaigns that she's so actively involved in. Um, so it, it doesn't matter who it is. It, we're able to be there for her with the, the suffering around that. But we also, um, we, I think I said this, but we make, did, did I talk about 500 egg salad and peanut butters and jellies? I didn't talk about that. Okay. Well, we make, we make sandwiches um, for urban ministries, which feeds the hungry in Charlotte. And so we, um, 
The last two times we've done it, we do it about once every three months. Last two times we've done it, we made 500 sandwiches. And there are about eight or 10 of us doing it because not everybody stays to do it. Or we um, participate, we meet in a Baptist church where the Buddhists in the basement. Um, and it's a, it's a very unique church. Um, they have a they have a hall down the hall from where we meet. We meet in a small room, and there's a, a big hall, a little bit bigger than this, that's called Shalom Hall. And it's called that because when the Jewish community in Charlotte was very small, Myers Park Baptist Church opened their doors so they could have a place of worship and to honor the practice that now there are four temples, I think, but to honor the practice that was established there. The church still refers to that hall as Salam Hall, Shalom Hall. Um, so it's a little bit unusual for a bat Southern Baptist church. We also got kicked out of the, not, the, not our Sangha, the church got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention and dropped out of the American Baptist Convention or vice versa, I'm not sure which, because of its stand on... Um, Allowing, um, allowing. I think they. I think it both had. Both of them were about allowing gays and lesbians and transgender to be a part of the church, and not to take the posture of love the sinner. Let's see, hate the sin but love the sinner, whatever that one is. That that that's not. That's not the church's position. So it's very. It's a very unique place. It's an amazing place. And um, so they also do a lot of social outreach with the church, which our sangha is able to connect with because we're too small to do anything by ourselves. But we're able to do small things when they do. Um, the churches in Charlotte have a program called Room in the Inn um, in the winter, which is kind of like this. Um, we... Um, the churches open their doors so that um, people don't have to sleep out in the cold. And um, so th th we will set up beds. And so our sangha, including the children, will, c will come in and make the beds and um, then make lunch. Or sometimes the kids will have made cookies to bring in. Um, um, we'll make breakfast and then sit and eat breakfast with our homeless neighbors. There are opportunities there, and it, it's great to have the kids. This is also a really great thing for the kids to do. I remember the girls following me around one year. A few years ago, we had a, a couple of girls around 12 years old, and I had the bedspreads wrong because they were supposed to be green, yellow, green. <laughs> so, you know, they get really involved. And my daughter's now 26, and she doesn't come to Sangha anymore, um, but she... When we do Room in the Inn, she wants to bake something and bring it, or she wants to do something. Those are the kinds of activities that we can engage in that really do deal with the person right in front of us. Um, and then there are lots of smaller things we engage in, and probably all of us do this. My mother is almost exactly six months older than Ty, who will be 92 in 10 days. Ty will, 11 days, it's the 30th. Um, and uh, 
she lives in South Carolina, very close to me. And um, there are a lot of people where she lives who are lonely. She lives in a good situation, but in the assisted living center where she lives, there are a lot of people who are really lonely, actually including her. But making the effort to be in touch with those people who are there, making my making the effort, my brother making the effort to be over there on a regular basis, this is engaged practice. We might want to take on the world and thank goodness for the people who do take on the world and the big issues. But we don't have to to make a difference. We only have to be in touch with the person who's right in front of us. Practice excessive altruism with that person. So I have a, I have a, um, I have a full pocket. <laughs> I have a, a song I wanted to teach you, and I, but I also made it a visual example of what happens when you get it and I'm distracted because you can. And I know it's really hard to read that far away. I couldn't figure out how to make it all fit on here. So instead, it's a visual, exa uh, visual example of distraction. How's that for rationalization? So, see this messy part right here? This is what happened when I started thinking, I'm not sure this is all going to fit. <laughs> um, and of course, you'll notice the handwriting down here is a lot smaller than it's up here, too. And this is really small, but that's all right. This is a song. Um, I heard Arlo Guthrie interviewed about this song. And um, the story he told was that um, Woody Guthrie, who was a, um, an American folk singer and writer and um, is known for union songs and things like that, social action songs. Woody Guthrie would go and stay with different people, but he would write on every scrap of paper that was around, and then he'd just leave them. And so Arlo Guthrie, his son, and one of his sisters were at someone's house, and they said, oh, here's some of the papers your dad wrote. This was after his death. Here's some of the papers you, your dad wrote. And this was one of the poems that was on a, a scrap of paper. And uh, Arlo Guthrie put it to music. Um, and for those of us who know Alice's Restaurant or anything else by Arlo Guthrie, it, you won't be surprised to know that it's, it's not really melodic. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I, I, uh, that's what the little tiny things up here say, words by Woody Guthrie, music by Arlo Guthrie, even though there's no music written there. Um, so I really believe in this, that the only thing I have to give is my peace. <laughs> 
There's nothing else. There is absolutely nothing I have said that wasn't already in your heart, especially if something I said touched you. That's only because the words rang the music of your heart. It was already there. So this is all we have to give each other, is our peace. So I thought maybe I would teach you this song because it, it kept coming up for me, as well as being a good visual example of distraction. Um, I, don't, I know you can't really hear it, uh, read it from way back there, I think. I think it's hard to read. But it says, the words are, well, I'll sing it in the spirit of our Guthrie. My peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. My peace is all I've ever had. It's all I ever knew. I give my peace to green and black and red and white and blue. My peace, my peace is all I have that I can give to you. My peace, my peace is all I've got and all I've ever known. My peace is worth a thousand times more than anything I own. I pass my peace around and round, cross hands of every hue. My peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. Want to sing it? Can you see it all right? If I move it closer to any one side, it's far, too far from the other, so. My peace, my peace is all I've got that I can give to you. My peace is all I have. 
I think the question becomes, so, so then how shall we live? So then how shall I live? There's not one answer. I think the three questions that, that didn't get addressed yesterday in our question and response period um, address some of this. One question was, is there such a thing as justified anger? And how would you work with that? Thank you. I think that sometimes there is such a thing as justified anger. But it's a question of how we work with it. I mean, that that's the second part of the question. I think the question has the answer that you hold the question. That was easy. <laughs> I do think that if we are mindful and present, I'm reminded of the question Ty used to get asked a lot, and I haven't heard in a long time, but um, I mean before he was sick, but people would say, well, um, you say to be nonviolent, but what's, what if someone breaks in my house in the middle of the night and threatens me and my family? And Ty's response was that he didn't know what would happen, but he knew that if he would practice being present in everything else that he did and being gentle and nonviolent, I don't think he called himself gentle, but being nonviolent and present, that if that situation arose, then he would know how to respond. That's what the question calls to mind for me. Is there a question, is there such a thing as justified anger? And actually, Dr. King's book talks about this too. Um, it's just a question of how we work with it. Anger is very destructive. I have generational anger. Um, I, and the practice has transformed it for me. Uh, but my father was an angry man. His mother seemed angry. She used to chase us with the fly swatter. <laughs> I'm not sure what we did or if it was justified anger. <laughs> I would advise against the fly swatter approach, though. Um, but the way that... The way that I would advise working with anger in general is to work with it before it arises and to work with the practice of being present. And then when anger arises, the seed may not be quite as strong or we may be able to see it clearly and understand it. Why am I angry with this person? Because I don't want other people to be hurt. Because I feel neglected. Because I feel overlooked. Um, because their conduct may cause harm to a generation or a group of people. There are lots of ways to respond to that. 
I don't know what the right way is. I only know that if I practice, then when I respond, as I respond, because I think I'm called to respond for the benefit of all beings, and when I respond, I'm more likely to respond in a way that will not cause more suffering. You know, there's actually a story told about the Buddha in a previous life um, killing another person. And I guess it could be justification or rationalization, but it was to stop the person from doing more harm. I'm not recommending that course of action, obviously. But... um, To me, it says, the clear, easy answers aren't always the right ones. They're not always the most compassionate ones. There's a question about And these two are sort of related. Well, when there's a fixer in our life who wants to fix us or others, what is a good practice to invite them to be more aimless? (laughs) You mean to fix them? (laughs) I'm sorry, whoever, I set you up, whoever wrote that question. You know, Ty always says that when we um, when we practice regularly, that people around us notice, and I think that's true. But also, people with whom we have a long-term relationship—our siblings, um, our parents, our children, our partners—have um, um, our closest friends have. Um, become accustomed to our being a particular way and um, may expect it even when we think we're not doing it. Um, I know (laughs) I was standing with my sister one time with another person who was describing a difficulty And I said, oh yeah, I used to be like that with my sister, but since the practice, I I really don't do that anymore. And she looked at me and said, oh yeah, when does that start? (laughs) So so I'm not entirely convinced that everyone picks up on our... (laughs) um, on our practice. Because my temptation is to give you Ty's answer to this question what's the best practice to support, I'll rephrase it, support another person's being aimless. Um, And I think it's it's true that the way we practice is um, important, but not everyone picks up on it. And um, there may be specific practices that we can use um, that that support our engaging with others this way, that they're not coming to my mind right now. 
but our practice itself makes a difference. And then the last question that um, I sort of identify with because when there's difficulty, I wanna, I walk away and most people know to leave me alone. Um, how can we create space in the moment when you're being, one is being perceived as being attacked and the other person perceives withdrawal as running away? And when you try to postpone connection, um, it, it doesn't work. The intention is there to be loving and supportive, honoring yourself and the other person. Um, It seems to me that yesterday, I think it was yesterday, I talked about the beginning of new practice and um, it, it there's a problem with using formulas in our relationships, especially with someone who's not a practitioner because um, it can feel like you're trying to treat them with a particular prescription instead of trying to engage with them. So it may be that we do things internally. So it may be that if we can use the, the beginning a new process, um, but not necessarily formally with the people who are around us, that some of the capacity for understanding will grow between us. And it can just be, it can be, in, it can be internal to the point that you say to yourself, okay, now I'm going to water this person's flowers. Um, and what you're doing externally is saying, thank you for this beautiful meal you made me. This is great. I love these. I don't know, jelly beans. Um, but um, to make a conscious effort to appreciate another person in whatever way is right in that situation. Um, and then to be open about smaller difficulties and to ask the other person for help to create the relationship. And every relationship is different. I had um, a friend who was having trouble in her marriage. She was sitting in our living room and my husband was there and she asked me, we've been married 35 years, I think. And uh, she asked me, what do you need to do to have a marriage last so long and be successful? Well, I could have told her. But instead, <laughs> Evan jumped right in and said, no, nobody knows what's going on in a relationship other than the two people who are in there. And so the, the people who are in the relationship need to look at that and understand it. And it's wise words. I'm, I married a very wise man. Somehow, I don't know how that happened, but um, yeah. So when we ask questions about relationships of each other, I hope we find the opportunity to shine light that helps 
lift the other person up and doesn't try to go back a question and fix the other person. Um, the, the only people who really know about a situation are the people who are in the situation, whatever sort of relationship it is. And so sometimes that's a form of altruism, not to give your opinion. That's my opinion anyway, isn't it? (laughs) So again, how how do we live? I find great inspiration in the um, teaching in the Lotus Sutra where um, the Buddha is giving a teaching. And the Lotus Sutra is full of um, lots of pageantry and jewels falling from the sky and things rising up out of the earth majestically. And it's, it's magical, sort of. Um, uh, it's magical, not even sort of. Um, but at one point, the bodhisattvas who have come to listen, the, those who work to help others say, you know, Buddha, I think we should stick around here because there's an awful lot of trouble on earth and you could use a hand or two, I think, so we'll stay here. And, he, and the Buddha says, no, we've got enough here. And he touches toward the earth and the earth opens up and all these bodhisattvas of various kinds come streaming out. And I think when we leave a retreat, we have the capacity to be like that, that we've touched our bodhisattva energy and we can nourish it and take it out into the world. And it will not manifest the same way for any one of us. It may be creating beautiful art. It may be dancing. It may be making a cup of tea for someone. It may be reaching the top shelf for somebody who's not tall enough to get there or sitting in the chair in the grocery store, sitting in one of those carts. There's so many ways we can be bodhisattvas. Aren't we lucky? So I wanted to close by reading you a poem by Tai that Um, feels to me like it sums up our being together. It's called interrelationship. You are me and I am you. Isn't it obvious we inter-are? You cultivate the flower in yourself so that I will be beautiful. I transform the garbage in myself so you will not have to suffer. I support you, you support me. I am in this world to offer you peace. You are in this world to bring me joy. Aren't we lucky? Mm -hmm. 